All right, we've um, been in Matthew 24 with Ray for a number of weeks. I've had the last couple of weeks, I've kind of embarked and made some comments about uh, how I approach these passages, because you, you, you kind of have to take 24 and 25 as a unit, but we're, you know, we typically divide up chapters and we don't have the uh, identical understanding of how you come to these passages. Uh, but pretty much we talked about coming at, uh, me coming to it hermeneutically as a contextualist is just a label I'll put on myself. Uh, you know, I'm always, you know, labels can always be misunderstood, but I, you know, I'm just uh, the principles, uh, the primary principle I bring to Scripture is that context just informs context, and, and, and what I don't mean by that is just like, oh, if I'm reading a passage, I read the passages around it, and I make sure it's in the context of the book. Uh, what I mean by that is that is this life work, um, and by the way, even if you take a more literal uh, a, a view of more literal expression of the scripture, um, it's, it's context is still immensely imp- important. I think there is this work of uh, all of your life, you are building your understanding of all of Scripture so that all of Scripture informs all of the rest of Scripture and you are prioritizing the things that the Lord prioritizes and you are understanding what is said in one place in the light of what is said in other places. Um, I think that uh, the evangelical tradition has done a pretty good job of emphasizing that the inspiration of the Holy Spirit means that the Bible is true. We, you know, what it says, we can, it is, it is rock solid, it is the truth. I think what we do less well at is understanding that not only is it true, which is, you know, I don't mean to minimize it all, it is tremendously important, but it is also uh, crafted in detail so that there is not a word that is accidental. So if Matthew 25, which we're going to talk about a little bit this morning, talks about virgins waiting for the bridegroom, you know, the Holy Spirit isn't just, as he inspires Jesus' uh, talk to his disciples, just, uh, and, then, and then it's recorded in scriptures by Matthew. He's not just faithfully recording what Jesus said. Jesus is exactly correcting, or I'm sorry, exactly adopting uh, the analogy, which is just right to fit in with the rest of Scripture. And there's a lot said about um, marital faithfulness and unfaithfulness, um, both individually, you know, we talk about, we talk about our own marriages uh, as a figure for Israel's and the church's relationship at, uh, in different ways to the living and the true God and to salvation. And, you know, this is Jesus talking to um, his well-informed and presumably scripture-loving disciples. And they hear bridegroom and they're thinking, oh, there's, there's all sorts of things that we know from the scriptures that have been said about marriage and the importance of it. And, and, And that informs your understanding uh, from a larger context. Um, and I'm going to kind of step back and, and take a macro view just to give you an example of how I think Scripture 
the context, the overall context of Scripture informs how you read Matthew 25. You know, I've told you, you know, last week, you know, we said, okay, there's, there's a, a warning here that professing to believe may or may not. We hope it does, but it doesn't necessarily equate to true belief. There's people who profess and they really don't get it. It's not really true faith. Um, and Jesus is warning, okay, you, you people claim to be uh, lovers of the living and the true God. You need to be warned of, of coming judgment. And, and we'll talk, you know, come back, kind of come back and capture a little bit of what he means by that, both in Matthew chapter 24 and 25. And you read that and you think, okay, the scripture starts with, with the creation of this world in, which was intended to be the place humanity will dwell. Excuse me. Will dwell with God, and the fall broke that up. And there's exile, and that is judgment on the entrance of sin into the world. And then uh, you have, you know, individual pictures of the judgment. But there's another big milestone where the flood comes, and you know the flood is referred to in Matthew chapter 24. So that's context for understanding this. God visits judgment. But then there's mercy after it as he, you know, restores uh, the line of his people as Noah, Noah's life continues and he's fruitful. But and yet Noah fails to completely reflect God's character. And then, and then you, you have, you know, the Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob line that gets carried into Egypt first by the betrayal of the brothers of Joseph and send him off to Egypt, he becomes the savior of his family as he becomes uh, second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt. And Israel goes, resides in Egypt, is saved there, but then Egypt turns on them, so to speak, and they need to be delivered. And they are warned after that, don't go back to Egypt. Egypt represents this system that is hostile to God. And and, uh, Egypt... Uh, is gets kind of wrapped up in later judgments as Israel relies on them inappropriately. And then, uh, well, even before Egypt, there's the Tower of Babel. You know, Babel is scattered. There's this, the, these inappropriate desires of men um, uh, to rise, you know, and deify themselves. And God says, won't have it. There is judgment on that, the, the humanity is scattered, but we have the roots there of Babylon. Uh, Assyria comes in and and destroys as an instrument in God's hand. We've been talking about that in the Minor Prophets. Assyria is an instrument in God's hands to um, to judge the northern kingdom of Israel, especially, and then Babylon, same way, southern kingdom of Israel. Um, and then it becomes pretty evident. There's you know the intertestamental period, uh, but uh, the the Persians and the Greeks are instrumental in God's discipline of His old covenant people. And then Rome arises, and here we are. Jesus is is in the time of Rome, which uh, I won't take the time to develop it. But it becomes pretty clear, especially as you read on uh, through the Book of Revelation, that Rome is referred to as Babylon, figuratively. Also, you have this theme going through Scripture that, that God judges and 
and yet in judgment there is there is mercy and that you know, this is the one of the big themes that runs through scripture so you bring all that to Matthew 24 and 25 and you find oh this isn't just about the end of time this is the fulfillment of a theme in scripture and to, to really appreciate it. Now, you can read it once and not have read anything else, and Scripture is clear, and you will glean wonderful truth from the first time you read this without any context. But to, to grow in, in your appreciation for what God, God's doing in any passage of Scripture, you know, it's, it's the work of a life, and you won't complete it in your lifetime just love and absorb and know the word of God and start making connections and building your understanding and read the context of what he's saying and the context of everything else that he has said. And it's, it's just a, a beautiful thing, which, um, yes, it's all true, but it's more than true. It is incredibly intricately crafted and it is incredibly intricately beautiful and it informs our understanding of who God is and how he's working in history in ways that simply going, yep, got it, true. Uh, that's great. That, that needs to be done, but there's more going on than that. And so um, Matthew 25, um, we've read this, this parable that Jesus says, and it's in the context, if you back up Matthew 24, um, beginning at verse 45, and, and I'm not going to comment on this except to just put Matthew 25 in its immediate context. He's been warning and talking about, um, I'm persuaded Matthew 24 is significantly and all the way through about the the judgment visited on the Jewish nation in the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70. But, uh, you know, in, in this, we talked about this hermeneutically over the last couple of weeks. I don't think that's all that it's about. It also has this greater fulfillment that it's looking forward to in the second coming of Christ. Um, and I, I, I think that's a pretty evident pattern in Scripture that you find over and over again. Scriptures that have an immediate meaning and they have a greater fulfillment. And I opened my approach to this whole thing reading Psalm 89. I just offer that to you to reread. It talks about David, my servant David. And then as you read, it refers to David several times. It couldn't be any clearer that though he is talking about David, he's not, the psalmist is not just talking about David. It has this, uh, this, this greater meaning referring to the true David, the fulfillment of David, the Christ. You know, when he says, I will make him my firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. I will set his hand over the seas. Wait a minute. That's not King David in earthly Jerusalem. Something else is going on here. Oh, and we see, the, oh, it, he's, this psalm is about David, but it's also looking forward to the fulfillment of David. And that's just one very simple and obvious example. There's a lot that goes on like that. So, Matthew 24, 45. Uh, Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom his master made ruler over his household to give them food in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his master, when he comes, will find so doing. 
Assuredly, I say to you that he will make him ruler over all, over all his goods. And then there's this warning. But if the master comes and the servant, and I'm going to just paraphrase rather than read the whole thing here. He's beating his fellow servants. He's behaving badly with the, with the drunkards. And the master of the servant shows up. There is, and pardon the expression, but I really think it's, it's appropriate. There is hell to pay. You know, if, if the master comes... And he finds the servant saying, ah, my master's not going to show up. He's been gone so long. I'm on my own here. I can do what I want. And the, the graphic uh, description of the judgment, you know, I will cut him in two and appoint him his por- portion with the hypocrites. There shall be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It is, it's dreadful. And the point is, 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 is this is going to be further illustrated in Matthew chapter 25. So, we read it last week. I'm going to read it pretty quickly. Then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to ten virgins who took their lamps, went out to meet the bridegroom. Five were wise, five were foolish. Those who, took, who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. I contended last week that this doesn't mean they had Zero oil. I think if, if, if you read and kind of think of the, the most natural understanding of this, they had some oil in their lamps, but they didn't have enough for an extended period of time. They could light the lamps, but they couldn't keep them full. Um, and I, I, you'll see, I think you'll observe why I say that. Uh, while the bridegroom, I'm sorry, but the wise took oil in their vessels, so they got their lamp, and they also have a pot of oil, another vessel. They took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But while the bridegroom delayed, they all slumbered and slept. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Go out to meet him. All the virgins arose, trimmed their lamps. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil. For our lamps are going out. So I take that to mean, oh, they could light their lamps, trim them. Uh, But it's not going to last long. We need more oil. The wise answered, saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you. But go rather to those who sell buy for yourselves. While they went to buy, the bridegroom came. Those who were ready went in with him to the wedding, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered and said, Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. And then verse 14 starts a, another analogy or parable. So as you come to this, um, there's always questions about, well, ten virgins? Is the bridegroom marrying ten people? Uh, well, uh, we could get into a long discussion about different people's ideas of wedding customs. Um, I'm just going to say that my opinion is simply that the bridegroom is, this is talking about a celebration, and the custom would have been that marriage is this very uh, significant union of lives and souls. It's not just a, oh, going to a wedding. You know, you're supposed to be thinking this is the celebration of the union of the bridegroom to his bride. And this is an intensely significant thing. Again, think of 
go, you know, put it all in context. Think in the context, oh, we've got Adam and Eve. The two will become one flesh. They are to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And that is fundamental to, to the mission of humanity in representing God in his, in his creation. That is not to say, by the way, I don't want to be insensitive and say, oh, you're not fulfilling your purpose if you're not married. That's not what I mean. I'm saying that if there are no marriages, we got a problem. That's it is fun, you know, fruitful families are fundamental to the purpose of God in creation. Um, uh, so is missions, and it doesn't mean that every single person uh, has to be on the foreign mission field. Although some certainly, if we have none doing it, we got a big problem in terms of our purpose. So I don't mean that to, you know to make marriage something that if uh, for single folks is to be understood as you're somehow missing God's purpose for you. Now, I'm talking about the macro picture, but I think we're to be understanding Matthew 25, uh, putting marriage in that uh, very important place in God's economy. Um, then you have passages like, and I'm just going to turn to a few, without developing the theme, but I just want to turn to enough uh, passages just to make the point you have that, you know, of, you know, what God, how God uses marriage is fundamental in his economy and significantly picturing his relationship with his people. Um, you have Isaac going, sending his servant to bring Rebecca out of a strange land. She follows him, you know, the servant in faith to be Isaac's bride. Uh, there's, um, you know, all, you know, a number of individual marriages. But then you have passages like this. Um, Isaiah 64 says, uh, did, I write down, uh, did I write down the wrong verse, 64? Oh, I'm sorry. Because this is not the passage I looked at. Oh, here we go, 62, I'm sorry. Chapter 62. Verse 5, not chapter 64. Um, now he's, in the con- immediate context is, uh, the Lord is telling Israel, you sh- the land of Israel shall no, no longer be termed forsaken when he restores you from judgment. You shall no longer be termed forsaken, nor shall your land be any more termed desolate. But you shall be called Hephzibah and your land Beulah, for the Lord delights in you and your land shall be married. Oh, there's this tie from marriage to fruitfulness. Uh, For as a young man marries a virgin, so shall your sons marry you. And as the bridegroom rejoices over the bride, so shall your God rejoice over you. Um, There's similar uh, pictures in Jeremiah. If you turn back a page and you look at um, Chapter 61, maybe I should have started and taken them in order. 61.10 in the book of Isaiah. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God, for he has clothed me with the garment of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. Um, And then you also have um, figures. By the way, you can look at Jeremiah chapter 33, 4, Ezekiel 16, 8. Think of the whole purpose of the, uh, of the book of the Song of, of, Sol- Song of Solomon. Haven't heard that 
you know, elaborated on in a Sunday school class very often, I, I imagine. But I don't think the Song of Solomon is just about two people. It's, it's illustrative of what the Lord is doing with his beloved people. Um, and then you have judgments. Turn over to the book of Jeremiah in the same context. Uh, in the first couple of chapters, as Jeremiah is laying out the purpose for his book, um, for his writing, he says in verse 32 of chapter 2, uh, and really, you know, read it for yourself, the book of Jeremiah is pretty much about preparing Israel for judgment, which the die is cast. Of course, there is always, when there's sin, there's a call to repentance, but this isn't a call to repentance in order to forestall the judgment. As Jeremiah writes, it's done, it's settled, you're not going to get out of this even by repenting, though you certainly should repent to to be uh, united in faith to your living and true God, but Babylon is coming. And here, Israel, is what you should expect and how you should respond. That's the tenor of the book of Jeremiah. And as he's setting that up, he says in chapter 2, verse 32, um, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. And there are similar passages. Also in Jeremiah chapter 25, uh, there's, and there's, the, the scripture has a number of other pretty significant passages where um, Israel is referred to as an unfaithful wife, uh, a harlot. And I mean, this is pretty fundamental to how God describes his relationship with Israel. So I am persuaded that as, we, as you build a life of context in scripture, you start thinking when you read Matthew 25, oh, this isn't just about some some bridesmaids who weren't ready for the ceremony and don't be like them. This is descriptive of how the Lord relates to his people. And uh, and, uh, uh, fundamental to it is not just being ready for a ceremony, but being the bride that God desires. And that bride is a faithful, fruitful, and I choose that word very carefully. I'm going to elaborate on that a little bit. Bride. Now, again, you get back to the question, well, why, is it, why are there ten of them? Um, I don't think the point is that the bridegroom is marrying ten brides. Uh, there are people, you know, pretty serious scholars of, of Scripture who say, well, you know, the customs of the day is perfectly reasonable to think there, there may have been you know a, a king who has multiple brides is very common in the day I don't see any reason to see it that way but I do think that just like we have bridesmaids today you know chaste women being part of the celebration of the great wedding is this appropriate thing and you want to be part of that um, I think also it's appropriate to think not in terms necessarily of multiple brides of polygamy, but think how Israel, in thinking of their, their God and creator, the bridegroom of the nation, if you're an Israelite and you're reading Isaiah and you're reading Jeremiah, you have to be thinking both, oh, I am part of the one nation that is my God's bride, 
or wife, but also it's a nation, and the nation is made up of multiple people. I have a corporate responsibility. Israel must be rightly related to their God, and I have an individual. Me, I, myself must be rightly related to their God. So if you have this figure here in Matthew 25 of not just a single bride, but of the ten virgins, then, then the analogy serves both of those uh, purposes that scripture has already set out. There is a, there's a corpus of people who should be ready for the bridegroom, a group, a, a wedding party, one thing, and that you know, would correspond to one bride, but there's also individual responsibilities. No single soul can escape their own responsibility to be prepared for the bridegroom. Now, what... You know, Exactly how you understand that. Are these ten brides? Or are they bridesmaids? Or, you know, and I'm, you know, I don't, I don't, need, I don't know enough and I don't want to get into a lengthy discussion of the wedding customs of the day. But I think, the, you know, as we read it, there's ten to point us both to this corporate standing that God's people have with the Savior, the bridegroom. And by the way, Jesus has already, in John chapter 9, identified himself as a bridegroom, the bridegroom. So this is not, you know, a new figure to the to the disciples. Um, but the fact that there's ten then gives us an opportunity to read this in terms of both the responsibility of the group and also the responsibility of each soul. Um, the oil, you know, we we live in a society we're so uh, used to thinking of oil as fuel. And you think, oh, oh, oil, and what would they have been thinking in those days when you when you say oil for a lamp? What would you, what would you, what, where would your mind immediately go? Not to BP. What's what's the oil? Olive oil. This is the fruit of a fruitful tree. We've already just as Jesus came into Jerusalem had the figure of him cursing an unfruitful fig tree. Um, no, it was an olive tree, wasn't it? I'm sorry. Yeah, it was an olive tree, uh, an, un- an unfruitful olive tree. Oh, just, just a little while later here, we have this figure of to be ready to be appropriately related to the bridegroom has to do with having the fruit of the fruitful tree, which, by the way, you can do a whole study on the theme of trees and how they reflect people. And so the fruit of the olive is the oil. And, and so this whole figure is wrapped up in this idea of, I'll try to write it big enough for you, Gary, fruitfulness. Pardon me if you can't read my handwriting. Fruitfulness. So this isn't an exhortation just, okay, be watchful, be ready. Lord, I, I, I trust you. I know you're coming. You know, you know, I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready. It's not just professing that. Back to this idea. Professing and truly believing are not necessarily. We wish they were always the same thing. We hope they're the same thing. But they're not always the same thing. And the measure of true faithfulness here is who has the product of the fruitfulness of God's bounty. Who who has prepared themselves with the oil of the fruitfulness of of the tree, 
Um, and I think there's a whole idea of you know, going back to the tree of life and the tree of death, if you will allow me to use that figure. Um, like I said, a theme of trees. Um, but the, the larger point is that to be faithful and to be prepared and to be fit for the coming of the bridegroom is tied in some way to fruitfulness. Because fruit, not because fruitfulness is how we earn our way in. You know, it's not like, oh, you know, you've got, you got to be certain, you know, got to achieve a certain level of fruitfulness, then you're good enough for your Lord. And we know salvation is by grace through faith alone. But the evidence of salvation is a life is lived faithfully. Faith is not an abstraction. It's not just something we, okay, I have faith. This abstract thing, faith yields faithfulness, which yields a certain kind of a life which bears fruit. And so this whole thing is, you know, and and hearken back to to the Matthew 24, the end of the chapter. What's the servant like when his master's away? Oh, that, the servant isn't earning his master's favor or forfeiting his master's favor. He's simply showing what he's really like. The point is, his faithfulness while his master's away doesn't determine what kind of a servant he is. It reveals what kind of a servant he is. Go ahead, Tim. Sure. And, and to, to, to jump to the response of the bridegroom. It's not, oh, sorry, you missed your chance. The response of the bridegroom, when the, when the ones who were unprepared went and bought oil, okay, I got, I got oil now, let me in. No, I never knew you. Not I knew you and then you blew it. It's I never knew you. That's... Really, the, the, the answer, if, if you don't sort of approach it that way, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense. You invited people to be your bridesmaids, and, or what, however you want to understand the customs of the day. You invited people to be their bridesmaids. Oh, they ran out of oil. They come to your door. They knock on the door. It, it's a sensible answer to say, oh, too late. We've already started. You're too late for the ceremony. You can't participate. That would kind of make sense in a natural reading. But... Who are you? I don't know. I don't know who you are. Well, that's taking some liberties with it, with the with the language. I think that, but when you just read it naturally, and 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 the bridegroom says, "I never knew you," 
You don't belong here at all. What do you mean? I was invited to be a bridesmaid. It, it doesn't make sense unless you see that, oh, there's this bigger picture going on here, uh, which Tim's referring to, that it's, you know, what's, what they really are is being revealed. And even though you're you know, part of the community, if you're not the one with... Um, just, just to make a, make a very direct connection, I'll just quote another pastor I remember hearing, you know, the oil of the grace of God, which I think you've got to take another step and, and, and attach it in your thinking to fruitfulness. Um, if that's not there, you may be part of the visible uh, celebrant group, but you're not someone the bridegroom knows. Um, and it's, you know, who is really his and we can't escape the figure, I don't think, that who is really his is not just who, who you know, kind of bucks themselves up to believe with all their heart you know, in, a, in an individual and abstract sense. It's are you living a life that displays faith? Are you faithfully living and related to your Savior? Now, you can take that too far. I don't think there's, you know, you know are there people who are saved at a point in life where there is no opportunity left to have a track record. Sure. That's not, the pur- that's not the purpose of this warning. He's talking to people who are living in history and are facing uh, the onrush of the years of history which are going to bring judgment. And he's saying you've got between now and then to show what you're really made of in terms of faith, in terms of a faithful relationship to your Savior. Um, so yeah, this, this isn't about the people who, you know, in the last days of their life finally understand the gospel. That's, that certainly happens, certainly. That's not, that's not the kind of situation he's addressing in this figure. Um, so, you know, don't get the idea that he's saying, oh, you've got to have a certain track record and achieve a certain level of fruitfulness before you can be confident that you're really his. But if you are living a life saying that you are his, and it is not characterized by this fruitful preparation to, to be with your Savior. There, you, you may not be what you think you are. And that's the, that's the clear warning. Other, a good place to pause there. Any other questions or comments or elucidation? Yeah. Yeah, I would say the purpose is pretty fu- pretty much fundamental. Um, 
it's, it's a pretty serious misunderstanding to be looking forward to Christ coming as just an escape. And it, don't, you know, God has, has never encouraged us to just be escapist kinds of people. Just, just close your eyes and you know, wait. It'll get here. I'll, I'll get out of here. You know. No, 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 no. You, you are here to fulfill the purpose of, being, of bearing God's image, bearing his name, bearing fruit for his sake. That's, you know, that's fundamental to, to what it means to be a human and a Christian, which I would say, in the, in a, in the truest biblical understanding, you can't fully be one without being the other. You know, if you're not Christian, if you are not rightly related to the, to the Savior, there's a, there's a, 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 a serious handicap in the very being of human. You know, to, you know, what, what Christ has come to do is to save us from being less than the human image bearers that we were intended to be. And to, to follow him in faith is, is becoming that image bearer. Of course, there's a point in time where you just are that because he has saved you, but then salvation always is also illustrated in these terms where it's, it's happening all the time. All right, let's, let's go on and read the next um, illustration. Um, verse 13 uh, ends this one. Watch, therefore, you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming for the kingdom of heaven. Oh, new illustration. is like a man traveling to a far country who called his own servants and delivered his goods to them. And to one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on a journey. I think immediately is pretty important there. I give you some things to take care of, and I'm gone. In this illustration. Then he who had received the five talents went and traded with them and made another five talents. And likewise, he who had received two gained two more also. But he who had received one went and dug in the ground and hid his Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with him. So he who had received five talents came and brought five other talents, saying, Lord, you have delivered to me five talents. Look, I have gained five more talents besides them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You were faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. He also, who had received two talents, came and said, Lord, you delivered to me two talents. Look, I have gained two more talents beside them. His Lord said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I will make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of your Lord. Then he would receive the one talent, came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you have not sown, gathering where you have not scattered seed, and I was afraid. And went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, here you have what is yours. I didn't lose it. I took care of it. Didn't lose it. Here, here it is. But his Lord answered and said to him, You wicked and lazy servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I have not scattered seeds, so you ought to have deposited my money with the bankers, and at my coming I would have received back my own with interest. 
Therefore, take the talent from him, give it to him who has ten talents, for to him who has, more will be given, and he will have abundance. And from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away and cast the unprofitable servant into the outer darkness. There will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And we'll come back to that next week. Thank you all.